This morning's text will be from Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Father in heaven, we need your help now to listen and to speak the word of God from your inspired scriptures. And so we ask you to come as you have come already. And as you have met us in song, would you meet us in the preached word? Healing, encouraging, purifying, reconciling, saving. You are a good and kind Father. You pity your children who fear you. And so look upon us with mercy and favor now because of our trembling trust in Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. I'm going to talk about the relationship between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism today. One of the reasons... We are called Baptists is because we believe that the New Testament teaches that we should baptize believers, but not their infant children. Now, there are many reasons why we believe this from the scriptures. I want to mention five and pass over them quickly and get to the text, Romans 4.11, which is a text which you may be surprised, is a text on which many who endorse infant baptism build their most daunting case. I pass over these five quickly because I've dealt with them already. I preached a sermon series on baptism in the spring of 1997, and I'm responding to mail that I got in this sermon. And I hope to answer some questions that were left unanswered there. So let me rehearse those five arguments. These are five reasons that Baptists have for why we stand where we stand, but then we need to answer some objections. Number one, every New Testament command and instance of baptism is preceded by the requirement of faith in the New Testament, all of them. Preceded by faith in action or preceded by faith in command. Secondly, every explicit... Let's put it this way. There are no explicit 
instances of infant baptism in the Bible. None. The three household baptisms, one of Lydia, one of the Philippian jailer, and one of Stephanus, mention no infants. In fact, the one where the household is spoken of somewhat in Luke 16, the jailer, it says... They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house, and they believed and were baptized, implying that the word was spoken and those who were in the house could understand and and believe. Third, Paul explicitly defined baptism as an act of faith. Faith. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Let me say it again. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised up with him through faith in the working of God. So there the phrase, through faith, is an essential component of the way baptism functions. And infants don't have faith, and therefore they are not qualified candidates for baptism. Fourth, the Apostle Peter defines baptism this way. Chapter 3, verse 21 in his first letter. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here he's saying what what you do when you get baptized is make a symbolic appeal to God for a good conscience and cleansing. And that is an act of faith from the heart of the one being baptized, not the heart of the parents. And therefore, it is believers who are to be baptized. Number five, and this one is, I don't think I mentioned in the series, but in reading further in these subsequent years and months, uh, has struck me as really remarkable. In Acts chapter 15, where the issue you remember was a big church council regarding whether or not circumcision should be preserved as something that Christians have to perform in order to be part of the people of God because it was performed among the people of God in the Old Testament and the debate went back and forth and they settled it. No, uh, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be a part of the people of God. If there was any place in the New Testament where... Baptism should have been mentioned as an argument. It should have been there if it was a replacement for circumcision, and it's never mentioned. That is very strange. If in the minds of the apostles, baptism is fundamentally a replacement of Old Testament circumcision without any qualifications, then surely during one of those debates and Luke's recording of it, they would have said, wait a minute, we can settle this in a minute. We've got baptism. We don't need circumcision. And nobody says it. Those are five reasons that Baptists are slow to embrace the more elaborate theological argument for infant baptism that I'm going to tackle this morning. This verse 11 in chapter 4 is called the linchpin for some of infant baptism. And I want to try to show you why they see it that way and then 
show you why I'm not persuaded. Now, we are dealing here with a great Reformed tradition. That is, a tradition that goes back to John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and other esteemed Reformers in whose shadow I am happy to stand and whose theology, by and large, I love. I don't despise this tradition that I'm addressing and disagreeing with this morning. And for many years, I have tried to be fair to it. And uh, it's very difficult to build a straw man here when you know you have many people sitting in front of you and many people who are going to listen on the tape and many who will write me letters to correct every false step I make about the uh, restatement of this position. And so I have no, nothing to gain and much to lose by putting up a straw man this morning. Uh, I love this, this group of people. Most of my heroes, in, hap, in fact, happen to stand in this tradition that I'm disagreeing with this morning. At the end of that series in 1997, I got some uh, mail... And I'll, I'll read you one of those in just a minute because it was a very, very, very good letter. And the fact that I have it in, on my file three years later and pulled it out and used it shows you how impressed I was with it. Um, but the main argument of the Reformed tradition that is not Baptistic like ours is that baptism corresponds to circumcision. And since circumcision as a sign of the covenant people of God was administered to the children of the covenant at eight days old, therefore baptism in parallel should be administered to the children of the covenant born to Christians when they're infants as well. That's the basic structure of the argument. Uh, there is a connection between baptism and circumcision in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Let me read this to you, even though I'm still puzzled by the fact that Acts 15 does not bring it out. Paul says in Colossians 2, 11, In Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Okay, so there's the key text for linking circumcision and baptism. Now, I don't want to argue the case this morning whether or not that's appropriate. I'm just, for the sake of the argument, going to grant it this morning. Let's just grant that there's a correlation of some kind between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament and then ask, what is the significance of that? What are we to make of this correlation? Well, for 400 years, uh, a fairly elaborate argument has been developed in the Reformed tradition that I count myself to be a part of, to the effect that baptism has now replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant people and therefore should be administered to the covenant children. Let me read you from the Westminster Directory for the Public Worship of God from 350 years ago. Quote, The seed and posterity of the faithful, born within the church, have by their birth an interest, that is a share, 
in the covenant and write to the seal of it and to the outward privileges of the church under the gospel, not less than the children of Abraham in the time of the Old Testament. Close quote. So that's the fundamental position of Presbyterians and Christian Reformed and the Reformed Church of America and everybody who traces their lineage back through the Puritans to the Reformers, Calvin, Zwingli, not Luther. The Lutherans have a different angle on infant baptism. We dealt with that some. I'm not going to deal with it this morning. So the sum of the argument we have seen is that... um, Just as the children of Abraham or the children of the covenant people were administered the sign of belonging to the covenant, so now in the church, the new covenant people uh, have a sign, namely baptism, and it should be administered to their children, and that's the the parallel. Now, this letter that I received from uh, this brother, friend, um, said that I did not deal with the most important text, namely Romans 4.11. And this is a key sentence from his letter. He said, For me, Romans 4.11 is the linchpin of the doctrine of pedo-baptism. That's infant baptism. Pull it out and the whole doctrine falls, he said. So you can see why when I come to this text in our trek through Romans, and I know that a number of my listeners as well as those on the tape wonder what I think about the relationship between this text about circumcision and baptism, I think it's good to stop one Sunday, only one, and then go back to the series next Sunday. So that's the reason for doing what I'm doing this morning. I want to respond to this letter because it represents millions of people, and it represents a very esteemed tradition, and it is important for us to understand. Now, what does he see in verse 11? Let's read it. Uh, Well, let's read it in context. What does he see that makes this verse so compelling for infant baptism? Start at verse 9 now in Romans 4. Paul reminds us, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Faith was credited as righteousness. So he's pointing out that Abraham was justified by God's righteousness as God reckoned his faith to count as God's righteousness. Then verse 10 points out how that happened. He says, uh, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So the point is that Abraham was justified or his faith was reckoned as righteousness before he did the work of circumcision. And that was last week's message that circumcision is a sign and a seal of the righteousness by faith, not a means to righteousness. And thus I developed it broadly in terms of all works being signs and seals of our justification rather than means of being justified. We are first justified by faith and righteousness is credited to us. And then that faith bears fruits in all kinds of different works. One of them, in Abraham's case, is circumcision, but that's the right order. Now, here comes verse 11. Verse 11 is like a kind of description or definition of circumcision and is taken to be very fundamental in the understanding of the relationship to baptism. Verse 11 says, He received 
the sign of circumcision, a seal. So those two words are taken to be definitions of the sign of the covenant, both baptism and circumcision. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. So Abraham's circumcision is a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith. Now, why is that so crucial? Why is that so important? And the reason is this. It's important because here, more clearly than anywhere else in the New or Old Testament, probably, circumcision is given a spiritual meaning, identical to the meaning of baptism as far as it goes. Circumcision is defined as a sign and seal of faith, the righteousness of faith. And we know, we Baptists say, Baptism is a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith. So, how does this then work? How does this help the infant Baptist position? Do you see it? It's a fairly significant and powerful argument. The point is this. If we can settle on a common definition of the sign, Circumcision and baptism. Namely, it is a sign and a seal of a prior faith and righteousness. Then why do you Baptists drag your feet in baptism when Abraham didn't drag his feet in regard to his children in circumcision? In other words, if even though it's a sign of faith and righteousness, you can do it to your children in Genesis 17, why don't you, Baptists, realize that you can do it to your children as Christians? Because if it doesn't rule out infants with this definition for Abraham, why would it rule out infants for this definition of baptism? That's the argument. That's why verse 11 is so powerful. Because, you see, I can no longer then, as a Baptist, simply say, look, baptism signifies faith. Babies can't have faith. Therefore, baptism can't be given to babies. That argument will not be adequate anymore. You see? Because if that were adequate, then Abraham would argue the same way. He says, Lord, you gave me this circumcision as a sign of my faith. My babies don't have faith. Therefore, I can't circumcise my babies. And God said, circumcise them, eight days old. In fact, let's read this just to make sure we have it clear. I'm going to read for, from Genesis 17, if you want to look at it with me, verses 10 to 12 of Genesis 17. And you see, in chapter 15, Abraham has been... Uh, justified by faith alone. God said, I'm going to make you great. You're going to multiply like the stars in heaven, even though you don't have a child in your own house. You're old man. Your wife is barren. So trust the promise to do the miracle. And he believed him. And God says, you're justified alone on that faith. Now, some years later comes the sign of the covenant 
And I'll read this to you now in Genesis 17, 10. This is my covenant, God says to Abraham, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house, who is bought with money for any foreigner who is not of your Descendants. So, slaves are to be circumcised. Every man and every baby born eight days old shall be circumcised. And this is my covenant with you. This is my sign of the covenant with you. So, even though, according to Paul in Romans 4.11, circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith, It was administered to babies. So, bring that over to the church. Even though, yes, Baptists are right too. Baptism is a sign and a seal of the righteousness of faith. It should be applied to their covenant children. That's why it's called a linchpin. You pull out the verse, and he says anyway, this fellow who wrote the letter, I don't know if everybody would say that, the whole thing crumbles to the ground. What shall we say to this argument? The main problem with this argument is a wrong assumption about the similarity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God today. That's my basic answer. I'm going to develop it for the last part of this message. There is a wrong assumption about the similarity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. Uh, The assumption is that the way God was gathering a covenant people Israel in the Old Testament and the way he is gathering a new covenant people today is so similar that you can properly apply the similar signs in both gatherings, both communities. I don't think that's true. I think the way God was constituting a holy people for himself in the Old Testament and the way he is constituting a new covenant people today is so different, so fundamentally different, that it becomes inappropriate to apply the similar signs to the same people. That's going to be the structure of my argument, and I'll try to unfold it for you. There are differences between the new covenant people called the church and the old covenant people called Israel. There are profound differences between them. You see, if you just stand back and say, what is the basic mistake they think we're making and the basic mistake I think they're making? And it is, the basic mistake they think I'm making is you don't see the similarity between the covenants. And I'm saying, you don't see the differences between the covenants. Okay? And now you've got a way how these are being measured here. And I'm going to try to point you to texts that I think the Reformed tradition does not adequately handle in terms of the difference between the covenant peoples. 
even though there is an overlap. So I've conceded almost everything so far in terms of the overlapping definitions of circumcision and baptism. I'm just, I'm conceding that and saying that's a very helpful and good observation from Romans 4.11. But even though there's an overlap in meaning between baptism and circumcision, nevertheless, circumcision and baptism... Don't play the same role in the way an old covenant people is constituted and a new covenant people is constituted. That's going to be the difference in my approach. Now, I think Paul makes this very plain in several texts. And I think it would be helpful if you turn to these with me. I'm going to only look at two of them. The first one is Romans 9, 6 to 8. So let's go there together. We'll stay with Romans for a minute, and then we're going to go to Galatians. Romans 9, verses 6 to 8. What I'm looking for in these verses is evidence that Paul conceives of the constituting of the people of God today, the new covenant people of God, in a way that shows that the giving of the sign of belonging to that people should not be given to the children of the flesh. Let's read it. Romans 9, 6 to 8. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And he's referring to many Jews being lost there. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel... They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, not Ishmael, I'm putting in not Ishmael, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now, what's relevant in that text for our concern? The first thing that's relevant in that text is in verse 6. There are not one Israel, there are two Israels in that verse. There is a physical Israel and there's a spiritual Israel. Read it carefully with me again. It says, They are not all Israel, that is, true spiritual Israel. They are not all true spiritual Israel who are simply descended from Israel, that is, physical religious Israel. You see that? Not all Israel is Israel. Not all Jews are Jews. Not all Israel is Israel. So God ordained, now listen to this very carefully, please. God ordained that the whole larger physical, religious, national people of Israel be known as his covenant people in the Old Testament. And that those people, that larger physical, national, religious, cultural body be known as my covenant people to whom every single one of them by birth is to receive circumcision. That is the males. And that's a whole other issue that I did address in 97. Why baptism is so appropriate because women and men are baptized and 
circumcision was only applied to the males, which I would love to take about five minutes and, and probe, only it would be speculation as to why that is in relationship to the physical descent. And you can just think about that on your own. But that's another issue that we'll leave aside. There are two Israels. The big national, political, ethnic, cultural, religious thing called Israel, to whom was given the promise of the land, irrespective of their faith. And all of them are to be circumcised. All the men. Therefore, the covenant people in the Old Testament, by design, are a mixed people. There's all the physical Israelites who are circumcised, and then God, as these verses say, working within that national, national ethnic group, is preserving for himself a remnant, like in the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, and then the, the faithful remnant all the way through. The true Israel within the larger physical Israel. God ordained this. All the people of Israel are the covenant people, even though not all Israel is Israel. Now, here's the question. Is the church today a continuation of the larger mixed group of ethnic, religious, national Israel, or is the church the continuation of the remnant and the true Israel? That is a fundamentally crucial question because it's going to make a difference in how you decide what sign and who gets the sign of membership in the covenant. Should we conceive of the church? Now, you may say, oh, that's easy. That's obvious. It was not obvious. It was not obvious to Calvin. Calvin blew it entirely on this score. And so did almost every state church since then. Church of Denmark, Church of Sweden, you name it. Churches have confused and brought together a, a civil religion, a people that you are born into, and then you have to decide whether to be a Christian Christian or not. Kierkegaard's, I don't know if you've even heard of Soren Kierkegaard, but those of you who have, Soren Kierkegaard's whole burden as the melancholy Dane was to show how unchristian Christendom was. Christendom had been conceived as the big Israel. National, ethnic, religious, you're born into it. This is not hypothetical. New England, my favorite theologians, blew it on this score. New England, the city set on a hill, God's new Israel, New England, blew it wrong. Because the, the misconception was the church is the continuation of the physical Israel in verse 6, when in fact the church is the continuation of the spiritual Israel in verse 6. And that is an absolutely fundamental mistake that most Reformed people have made all along. Now, it gets cleaned up a little bit, which is why the whole concept of confirmation has been developed in the Reformed Church. It has no 
echo in the New Testament. There's nothing like confirmation in the New Testament because, in my judgment, there was no infant baptism in the New Testament and therefore you didn't need anything like confirmation. You see, what confirmation is, is we know a lot of these babies that we've just baptized are not coming to faith, so they better get confirmed in their faith before they can really vote in this church. Well, all that is a complex thing that has to be developed if you get off on the wrong track. I'm offending some of you. <laughs> Sweet memories you have of those confirmation classes. It's all right. The Lord uses all kinds of things. Thank goodness. Now, I, I have jumped the gun in answering my own question. Um, I answered the question for you. Uh, is the New Testament church a continuation of the spiritual Israel in verse 6 of Romans 9 or the broad physical Israel in verse 6 of Romans 9. And I gave you my answer, but I want, to, I want Paul to give you his answer. So let's go to Galatians chapter 4. Let Paul answer that question, not Piper. Galatians chapter 4, verses 22 following. Now this is a very uh, complex and Allegory he develops, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read a couple of verses and draw out, I think, what is an obvious lesson from the part that I'll read. Uh, Galatians 4.22. It is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, before I read on, remember that in Romans 9, 7, and 8, it said that the children of promise are like the Isaac factor in Israel. The Isaac factor. Not the Ishmael factor. And you've got the same two sons here. The Ishmael kind of, of descendant of Abraham and the Isaac kind of descendant of Abraham. They both got circumcision. They both were circumcised. Do we continue a body in which you baptize Ishmael's and Isaac's? Galatians 4.22 For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman. Now, he's talking there about Ishmael born to Hagar. One by the bondwoman, one by the free woman. That's Isaac born to Sarah. Verse 23. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. That's the same phrase we saw back in Romans 9. According to the flesh, children of the flesh. The son of the free woman through the promise. Now, then he develops the allegory. And I'm going to skip over this complex allegory. It would just get everybody confused. Drop down to verse 28, because I don't have time to unpack it. Verse 28, he says, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. Now, link that with verse 23. The son by the bondwoman was according to the flesh, Ishmael. The son by the free woman through the promise. Now, verse 28. And you, brethren. Now, who is that? I ask you. Who is you, brethren? Tell me. It's the church. It's believers. You, brethren. You, the church. The body of Christ. You, like Isaac. Now, you see what he's doing? He's answering my question. Is the church the continuation of the Israel within Israel, or is it the continuation of the whole Israel? And he's saying, you, brethren, are like those born of 
promise, not born of the flesh. Like Isaac, children of promise, not just children of the flesh. The church, so here's my conclusion, big conclusion. The church is not to be a mixed heritage like Abraham's seed or like physical, political Israel. The church is not to be like Israel. A physical multitude and in the church a remnant of true saints. Verse 28, Galatians 4, the church is, quote, like Isaac, children of promise. Now, what conclusion shall we draw about this with regard to the sign and its administration? Here's my conclusion. The people of the covenant in the Old Testament were made up of Israel according to the flesh. An ethnic, national, religious, political, large, mixed group containing children of the flesh and children of promise, children of God. Therefore, it was fitting that circumcision was given to all the children of the flesh. Because the people were defined that way. And within them, God was calling out a remnant. But the covenant people was defined larger than the remnant. Therefore, it was fitting that the children born of the flesh have the sign of the covenant defined by the larger people. But, you can see exactly where I'm going. The people of the new covenant, called the Church of Jesus Christ is being built and constituted in a fundamentally different way. The church is not based on any ethnic, any national distinctives, but on the reality of faith alone, by grace alone, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are a spirit-born new covenant people. We are a continuation of the Israel within Israel, not Israel mixed. And therefore, it is not fitting that we baptize the children of the flesh. That's my argument. Let me say it one more way. The church is the new covenant community. Think about the phrase, new covenant with me. Israel of old was not a new covenant community. The new covenant community, prophesied by Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Deuteronomy, that someday it would come, is marked differently. We say every time we take communion, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So when Jesus died and shed his blood, he was forming a new covenant community. What's the difference? Well, the new covenant promised, I will put my spirit within you. I will write the law on your heart. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, it is a spiritually authentic community. It's a community with true spiritual life marking its members. Having these things, the spirit within, faith without, law written on the heart, walking in the statutes, these mark the community. 
therefore, to give the sign of covenant, the sign of covenant, baptism, dying with Christ, rising with him, in newness of life, touched by the Spirit, to give the sign of baptism to those who are merely children of the flesh and who give no evidence of new birth, No evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. No evidence of the law written on their heart. No evidence of vital faith in Christ is to contradict the meaning of the very people into which we say we are welcoming them and to go backwards in redemptive history when in fact God has taken us forward. The church is not a replay of Israel. It is an advance on Israel. It's not a replay. It's an advance on Israel and to use. You see, I'm not arguing that the signs mean anything different. I'm saying the way they are applied, the way they are administered is determined by the nature of the people God is constituting in the age when he's constituting it. And the difference I've tried to develop in such a way as to make it plain why it's fitting to baptize the children of the flesh under that kind of dispensation and constitution, and it is so unfitting in our own day. So, my prayer now as I close is that God would grace this message by persuading some of you that these things are so and enabling some of you to move forward to be baptized, not because I'm interested in getting anybody to be a member of this church. Good night. There are a thousand churches that are good to be members of. That's not driving me at all. In fact, I'd like some of you to leave this church because we're going to have to go to three services in January if you don't. And I don't want to preach three services. So I, I mean that with all sincerity. We, we need to ship out a few hundred of you to another church or other churches, and that would be good. So I'm not trying to recruit anybody here this morning. I, I have a truth issue. I care much about your souls. I care much about your obedience. Uh, and really, I want to entice you. I want to entice you. And, and I, I don't have in mind just the blessed Reformed folks among us who aren't baptized yet. I have in mind really dozens of you who aren't baptized as infants or anyway at all this morning. And and you're listening to this and saying, good night, I, I've never heard of any of that stuff before. And frankly, I've never even thought about baptism. <laughs> and you're wondering, does this apply to me at all? And I want to close by saying it really does apply to you. And the enticement would go something like this. Let me ask you this, all of you. Have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Have you been cleansed through faith in Christ? Have your sins been forgiven? Have you died with Christ and risen by faith to walk in newness of life with Him? Does the Spirit of Christ dwell in you? Has the law been written? Is it being written on your heart today? If so, then come and signify through faith and baptism this glorious work of the new covenant in your life. 
In other words, what I'm asking you to do here at the close of the service is glorify God on September 15 in this pool. Believe it or not, I'm standing on a baptismal pool here. This is a baptismal pool. We take the boards off, fill it up with water. We walk in from that side, walk out. If you want to see one happen this Wednesday night, come watch it happen. We've never lost anybody in the water. It's a glorious thing. It is intended by God to display in a drama the work of the new covenant for the new covenant people. And so let's not go backwards in redemptive history and try to be the old Israel. Let's go forward in redemptive history and be the new covenant people he called us to be. If you're sitting there saying, yeah, but you're not a pure church and there are a lot of non-redeemed people. That's true, which is why the New Testament preaches church discipline. Which I need to take time out on to preach soon. Because there are many in this church who are on the rolls who shouldn't be on the rolls. They're walking in the dark and they're not believing. Though I baptized them once upon a time. And it grieves me that we're as delinquent in church discipline as we are. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we close, I know it's been a complex message and controversial in some regards. And if I've made any errors or said anything inappropriate, just check it and fix it. But Lord, if I got anything right here, as I do believe I have, would you confirm it by your spirit in the hearts of your people? We want to be unified here. We want to be obedient. We want to respect those across the the lines of our Baptist faith as we do. We love, we love our Reformed brothers and sisters. We cherish the greatest things in common. And I pray, O God, that you would guide us all. And when we have another baptism here on September 15, grant that there would be many who have been delaying that would say, now's the time to glorify God by dramatizing the new covenant work in my life. Do you stand for a benediction? Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people of God said, Amen. You're dismissed.